maybe the fundamental problem here is spiritual. And so maybe the first thing is to enable people to be opened up to the idea that we are creatures living among fellow creatures. And that as a sort of starting point for understanding how we see our place in the world seems to me to be perhaps the most fundamental insight. Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, I think for one, I think is off. They're awesome. So what do you think is the deal with animals? Hey everyone, welcome back to our Animals and the Divine series. Today we have a very special guest joining us, David Clough, Chair in Theology and Applied Sciences at the University of Aberdeen. David's work on Christianity and animal ethics has been gaining a lot of attention and we're so excited to have him here to talk about his research. So if you're interested in exploring the relationship between Christianity and animal ethics and learning more about David's insights and perspectives, then you won't want to miss this episode. But before we jump in, I want to give one more shout out to one of the folks I met at the 2023 Animal Care Expo in New Orleans, Cecilia Nieves. She's director and founder at Animal Lovers Dream Rescue, which has the amazing mission to care for dogs and cats that are critically ill or injured, many of which would otherwise be euthanized due to lack of owners, funding, or space. They are dedicated to providing medical care, socialization, and the training needed to place them in caring permanent homes. The work that you and your volunteers are doing is amazing and so necessary. Now, let's get to our conversation with Dr. David Clough and find out more about our responsibilities towards other creatures from a Christian perspective. Thank you for joining me as we continue to ask the question, what's the deal with animals? Welcome to the podcast. Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? Hello, I'm David Clough. I'm Chair in Theology and Applied Sciences at the University of Aberdeen, and my pronouns are he and him. Perfect. Thank you so much. As part of our Animals and the Divine series, I wanted to talk to you about Christianity and animal ethics. And you've written fairly extensively on this subject. So why don't we just start with your impressions, why you got started in this work, and what brought you to wanting to write about the subject? Yeah, thanks. So I've been a, I was raised Christian and I turned vegetarian when I was 18, when I went away to university and when food choices were under my control, it seemed like an obvious thing to do. But one of the things I was struck by as at university and beyond was the other Christians I knew and after a couple of years, when I switched from natural sciences to theology, the other theologians I knew, and when I got further in an academic career towards Christian ethics, the other Christian ethicists I knew didn't generally see animals as a significant object of Christian concern. Most Christians I knew weren't vegetarian. Most Christians I knew didn't see a big linkage between 
belief in Christianity and thinking about moral responsibilities towards other animals. And so when I began to look at research topics post-PhD, that seemed an interesting thing to pick up to try and begin to explore and explicate the connections I saw between a Christian understanding of God and the world and human responsibilities towards other animals and be in conversation with fellow Christians, fellow Christian theologians, fellow Christian ethicists about those kinds of connections. So when I was a little kid, I had some neighbors that were also little girls and they were very Christian religious, whereas my family was very much not. And so sometimes we'd have little kid conversations about these things. And it struck me, I, I, I have to say, I was quite shocked even at the, at the tender young age of eight or nine when these girls told me that animals didn't have souls, that trees didn't have souls. That was a shock to me that anybody would see a tree or see an animal and not feel immediately that that was a being and that had some sort of soul. And I understand now that's not what everybody believes, but it was such a surprise to me at that time. And is that a pretty common belief in Christianity then? Or are you finding that when you get more into theologians and ethicists, that there is more of that or less of that? So the language of soul, I think, does have a particular loading in Christian tradition. And there's certainly a sort of long-standing and fairly deep-rooted sort of sense that soul ought to mean rational, eternal soul. Christians have got reasons to think that human beings are the only creatures with that kind of soul. And so I think particularly strongly in Roman Catholic traditions, but I think also more generally, you'd find many Christians subscribing to that kind of view. The different, one of the differences between human beings and other kinds of creatures are humans have a soul. The, the interesting thing is that's a relatively sort of recent idea in the history of Christian theology. And so Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theologian, prominent, very prominent in Christian tradition and in animal ethics, is one of the people who doesn't think that we have any relatives towards animals under the duties of charity or justice. He thought that animals did have souls. He was in dialogue with Aristotle and other Greek thinkers who were clear that to be living meant to have a soul. Aquinas thought that human beings were the only ones that had this kind of rational, eternal soul. And I think it's only when we get to the 17th century and Descartes that there's a sort of denial of soul as such for non-human beings. And then it's interesting, even Descartes thinks he has a theological reason for that position because he thinks heaven, people have been staring down microscopes and seeing all kinds of little teeny weeny animals that they didn't know existed before. And Descartes says, well, one of the reasons why we need to say only humans have souls is otherwise heaven's going to get way too crowded if there are all these kind of uh, sort of soul-imbued creatures around the place. But then, again, theologically, it's interesting that the idea of human beings as unique bearers of this rational, eternal soul doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. First of all, we know rationality is a whole lot more complicated than Aquinas credit for, and even Aquinas thinks non-human animals share in some kinds of rationality, like you thought dogs have a certain kind of prudence and so on. So that rationality sort of boundary 
is pretty unstable and I think pretty implausible given, especially given all the kinds of things we know non-human animals could do now. But then the idea of an eternal soul is a pretty problematic concept, I think, for Christians as well. Christians believe in a, a body that dies and then Orthodox Christian teaching is resurrection of the body. And so the idea that there's this kind of eternal soul that sort of survives death is, is a problem itself. So I, I think some kinds of Christian thinking about animals do get hung up on this idea of soul, but I think that's not a very helpful way for Christians to think well about other kinds of that, other kinds of creatures and other kinds of animals. Interesting. So if it isn't soul-based, the idea of needing to be ethically thinking about animals or other beings, then what is it? What makes us need to think about animals that way? The more I think about it, the more I think it's about pretty basic Christian doctrine, which is monotheism. I think, and obviously Christianity isn't the only religious faith that is monotheistic, but I think once you've got an idea of the God that you worship is the God that is the creator of all that is, and then once you put alongside that the idea of a good God who is the creator of a good creation and who brings a whole myriad kinds of creaturely life into being and wills that creaturely life to flourish, then it seems to me pretty inescapable that human beings as part of that created order who are seeking to align their action in relation to God's purposes in creation and in theological language, reconciliation and redemption, the Christians have got pretty obvious reasons for being concerned, like God is, about the flourishing of their fellow creatures. And if human beings have got particular characteristics, perhaps they're more able than your average creature to take a view about what constitutes the flourishing of fellow creatures, then their responsibility would be higher than that of other creatures to be looking around and seeing what other creatures need. One in interpretation of that second creation story in Genesis 2, where Adam is placed in the garden and asked to till it. I think one very plausible way of understanding what's going on there is human beings being given some kind of responsibility for enabling the flourishing of the creatures in the garden. And I think that sort of fundamental image is a very good way of constituting what it means to be taking seriously God's creative and redemptive purposes for creatures when we find ourselves in the world and, and look around at all of these other kinds of animal creatures we find around us with very interesting similarities and differences. We can, we can recognize even pretty extinct, instinctively what, it, what might constitute the flourishing of this cat or this rabbit or even this spider that's trying to escape the bath. I think we've got ways of engaging in a very empathetic mode with what might constitute the flourishing of fellow creatures. And then obviously we can get a whole lot more sophisticated once we study them more carefully and understand more about what they need to grow and thrive. Yeah, that makes sense. And why do you think that that changed so much in terms of very early on in the Bible? It seems well, to me that early on, humans are more caretakers of animals and neighbors of animals. And then later on, it's like, actually, you can just do whatever you want with them. How, why does that change? So I don't think within the Bible we ever get to, you can do whatever you want with them. 
So I it think seems to be the interpretation though sometimes. Oh sure. No, the interpretation is a whole nother issue. And that's interesting in itself. But I think within the biblical narrative, we've a sort of economy where human beings recognize they're surrounded by different categories of creatures and especially domesticated and wild is a really significant category alongside clean and unclean, the kind of animals you can eat and the kind you don't. And there are complex negotiations of what's permissible in that sort of network of relationships. But it's never, it's never morally immaterial what you do with animals. We seem to have this vision at the beginning of Genesis. Other animals aren't the kinds of things that you eat and aren't the kinds of things that you kill. And then after the flood, the first time we've got explicit permission for human beings to take the lives of animals for, for food, but it seems to be pretty much a second best, a sort of creation mark two, when the first arrangement didn't go very well, Genesis 9 post-flood, okay, you can do these kinds of things now, but make sure that you don't consume the blood of an animal because that's the kind of thing that you and animals have got in common. So that's a, almost like a sort of cannibalistic worry, I think. Don't consume the lifeblood. And then you, that turns into these really elaborate um, food rules and sacrificial rules about what and what uh, um, re, uh, very strong restrictions on how and when and by whom and where and for what reasons animals can be killed. Animal killing looks like a very morally serious act in those rules about sacrifice and a consumption of animals in the Old Testament. And then animal sacrifice, I think it's really important we see is not saying that animal lives don't matter. It's saying quite the reverse. Animals are somehow able to mediate nothing less than a sort of relationship between humans and the divine. And so animal sacrifice is a remarkable sort of sense of the power of fellow animal creatures to be able to perform that kind of mediating role. Um, and then in the New Testament too, we've got teaching that sort of repeats what would have been Jewish commonplaces, Jesus says, when he's tried to reassure his listeners about God's concern for human beings, he says, you all know that not a single sparrow falls apart from your father, or not a single sparrow is forgotten by God. Um, and it's just a kind of comment in passing on the way to trying to teach them something else. That's not a special innovative point that Jesus is making. And so there's almost taken for granted sense that God's care is for even the sort of humblest of creatures. And that means that, you know, none of that is immaterial. Another thing Jesus teaches about re repeatedly is, well, any one of you, if one of your animals fell in, got into trouble on the Sabbath, you'll do the work of pulling a sheep out of the well. So it's just that kind of care for fellow animals seems to be a sort of commonplace. So you're right, we do get to a point when Later on, when Christians think, well, our faith has got nothing to do with how we treat animals. But I think that's a real stretch. Um, Keith Thomas, a historian of Christian attitudes towards animals, says that it was the sort of the commonplace between medieval and early modern times was it was okay to use animals when you needed to for food and clothing and other kinds of things, but you should never subject them to unnecessary cruelty. And so that's what he took to be the sort of default Christian position. I'll take one step beyond that. And in response to criticisms that some atheistic philosophers like Peter Singer have said about Christian attitudes to animals, that says 
Christianity as the heart of the problem in relation to the exploitation of animals. I think that's quite implausible. I think that humans want to explain and justify their exploitation of animals and that what we through human history, whatever sort of the dominant thought world is of the time, there'll be resources taken from that thought world to justify the exploitation. And so when Christianity has been the dominant religious and intellectual tradition, then I think Christianity has been braided for the texts that will give justification for exploiting animals without reading the kind of animal welfare legislation in the Old Testament without taking that seriously, without taking Jesus's teaching about sparrows seriously. And yeah, I think it's quite hard to, to look at Christian beliefs about God, the world, animals, and biblical traditions, and to say, okay, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't really matter for our faith. And as I'm talking with so many different theologians from different areas of the world, I'm hearing a lot of that as well, is that pretty much every religion that I, of the people that I'm talking to, are finding when they do research that a lot of these religions are starting as very vegan religions and then somehow morph into more of a, yes, but we actually can, we can eat them and we can do what we need to do, but we have to take care of them. And then that is often used then more politically or more regularly to justify just about any behavior towards animals. So I can see where Peter Singer would be coming from in terms of just maybe not Christianity, but religion in general being a problem when it comes to how animals are treated in the long run. But wonder if in an atheistic society, if we'd still come up with some sort of reason to use animals the way we wanted to. So one thing that's really striking to me is that the community when that is telling the stories that get written down as Genesis 1 and is recording the prophecies that talk about a time when there won't be any more killing of animals, the community that's kind of thinking back to how things were originally and thinking forward to how things will be finally, and both in both cases thinking originally animals were, we weren't supposed to be killing animals and eating them, and finally there won't be any animals killed on God's holy mountain, there'll be this peace. The community that's doing that is a community that's using animals for food. And so what I'm, I don't think there is any sort of original vegan history of a Jewish or a Christian community. There are you know, various communities that are deciding not to eat animal products. But what's striking to me is that you have this community that's keeping animals, making use of them for food, but recognizing that this is some kind of second best that the kind of things they believe about God and the world recognize that things would be better if we didn't have to do this killing and things will be better. When God's will is finally done, there won't be any more of this killing. So it's this kind of this sense of a bad conscience in a way about what it takes to get from day to day. In a Christian context, theologians would talk about this as recognizing the fallenness of creation. Something's gone wrong between God's sort of original vision for how creatures ought to live together and the world in which we find ourselves now. And in the right way, I think that sort of sense of distance between the world as is and the world that would fully reflect God's will is a very powerful resource for thinking about sort of reform and change because it takes you into this, opens the space for this moral imaginary of saying, Maybe things don't have to be this way. 
which I take to be a really powerful motivation for thinking differently about our relationship with animals, including a sort of vegan uh, imagination. And so I think it's right that we have always wanted to use religions and other kinds of philosophies. I think there's all kinds of atheistic philosophies we can draw on to justify our exploitation of animals. A sort of atheistic humanism is liable to be valuing humans in a way that's different to other animals in, in sort of important versions. So I think there's any numbers of different ways we can find to justify the nasty things we want to do to fellow animals. But Christianity and other religious traditions have counter resources that also challenge that idea that the whole world can be interpreted just as material for the achievement of humans, human ends. And I think Christianity alongside other religions is resistant. It understood is resistant to that sort of seeing the whole world as just for humans. Sometimes I have conversations with fellow Christians that say, didn't God give us animals for us to use? Um, yeah, my next question, like in the original vision, what were animals for? Were animals just perfect in their own right? And, you know, and therefore weren't for anything other than just being themselves? Or were they literally for humans to use or company or what? So it's, it's interesting and complicated. So Genesis 1, we've got God sort of creating different creatures on different days, declaring them good, willing them to be fruitful and multiply, but then saying there's something particular about this human kind of creature. They're made in our own image, God says towards the end of Genesis 1, and they're to subdue and have dominion over other creatures. And so there's this kind of authority stuff. But then at the end, oh, and by the way, this, what humans are going to eat is fruit and seeds. So whatever that dominion meant, in the context of Genesis 1, it doesn't mean the right to take animal life for food. And then in Genesis 2, you've got Adam, this sort of earth creature, before Adam is male or female, being presented with these other kinds of creatures. And it's talked about naming, and sometimes that's interpreted as a sort of power play. But I think that's also interpretable, Adam encountering these other creatures and learning about them, recognizing them in a space in which there's no economic relationship between humans and other animals. Adam's got no need for these other creatures, not using them for food, not using them for clothing. And I think the sort of main thrust of those creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2 is that, yeah, human beings have no need of animals. Other animals aren't brought into being to be useful to humans. There's these diverse kinds of creatures and humans are living alongside other creatures and you know in a sense i think that naming is a sort of delight in discovery the particularity and individuality and identity mm -hmm. of these fellow animal creatures i always loved naming my pets when i would get a new animal in the house in this quick break i want to point you towards the new space at the dealwithanimals.com under consult services this is where you can go if you're in animal welfare or advocacy and you want to share your mission, message, and enthusiasm by starting a podcast. These consults are focused for individuals and organizations who are thinking about podcasting as a way to reach out to their communities and make sure their message is heard. From this page on the website, you can book a free one-on-one -on -one consult with me to talk about your goals and see where a podcast would fit in. I look forward to hearing from you. 
why even have the other animals in the first place? Were they just tests, you know, like, or experimenting before making the the right thing or the, the perfect being? I It's really hard to find any sort of location for that kind of thought in the Bible or Christian theology. There's a, even when human beings are celebrated as they're in a special hierarchical role, there is also a sort of valuing of the diversity of creation in all its goods. Aquinas says a diverse creation is of more value than a creation that's all the same, whatever else is happening. And so there's this sense of the kind of, lots of the Psalms, the creation Psalms, like Psalm 104, have this sense of God who is in charge of this astonishing diversity of creaturely life or the closing chapters of Job. Humans are confronted with this sort of mysterious, astonishing mystery and expanse that they comprehend very little of. And so humans worship a God that they recognize is so much greater than they are and humbled by the sense of this magnificent creative project with all these kind of What's God doing making Leviathan and Behemoth, these really big threatening monsters? You know, if human beings are all that matter, why would God be delighting in, in those kind of really threatening, pretty scary kinds of creatures? But the closing chapter of Job says, you don't know, Job doesn't, you don't know what's going on with all of this. You weren't there when I made the universe. You're just one tiny part of this sort of great project. And that, I think, is a really cool strand in thinking in the Hebrew Bible, Christian Old Testament, and, and on into the New Testament and lay Christian theology. That's interesting because that, that also, you know, is what science tends to tell us about diversity as well. The diversity of, of genetics, the diversity of animals in the world and, and is only good for the environment, is only good. You know, one of the big problems we have with the rainforest is when people are burning the rainforest down, it's ruining a diversity that is some of the best in the entire world. And and it's interesting that you're seeing that same sort of theme within Christian theology as well. Yeah, very much so. I think I think part of the objection to the clear-cutting for sort of monospecies arable agriculture or industrial animal agriculture that is raising animals just according to this one particular genetic model that maximizes productive efficiency. I think that is a rejection of that sense of this kind of astonishingly intricate, connected, creaturely world that God brought into being. I'd like to address something that you brought up at the very beginning of an article you wrote, Should Christians Eat Animals? Which is when there's no other significant issues going on that people should be trying to address, like systemic racism, extreme inequality. You mentioned severe climate change. Why should we be talking about animal ethics? So I felt like that was something that was a, a good thing to address as well here. Yeah, I think it's really important in most of the contexts where I'm speaking. It's I think people concerned with animal ethics are apt to be misunderstood as unconcerned about a whole range of human social justice issues and maybe also unconcerned about environmental issues that apt to be pushed into a sort of caricature of this sort of sentimental concern with non-human animals that's not paying attention to other important things that are going on. And so 
for me, it's, I think that's quite implausible for a lot of people concerned about animal ethics, but where, but it's really important in a Christian engagement with animal ethics to, uh, recognize that this can't be just a sort of single issue concern where everything else is aside for pursuit of this one issue. And so it seems to me that it's important to say the the interests of non-human animals matter, but so do the interests of human animals and also the wider environment that we all depend on matters too. And so we ought to be attentive to where the sort of trade-offs between human well-being and non-human animal well-being and environmental well-being and be able to engage with the com complexity of that. And for me, that's evident, for example, in some worries about continuities between colonial in Africa, trying to prohibit local indigenous people from making use of wildlife in order to protect wildlife for sure. colonial hunting projects. And there's continuities between that and modern conservation efforts that are also apt to not be paying attention to the interests of peoples in a place about their engagements with wild animals. And so we need to reckon with needing to pay attention to those human and more than human at stake. For me, the good news in relation to project of advancing animal ethics is that most of the most egregious things that we're doing to animals, and I think our food use of animals and industrial animal agriculture is top of my list here. Most of those things turn out to be lose for humans, for human well-being, for non-human animal well-being, and for environmental well-being. And even once you begin to come to terms with that, it's hard to see why we're doing any of this stuff, given that they're so damaging in each of those spheres. And so the way I'd like to engage people with these issues in most of the contexts I'm talking to is that it really matters what we're doing to farms and wild animals and the kind of exploitative and cruel relationships we have with them really matters. And, uh, and it's fixable or potentially fixable because it's not, we're not trading off human interests against non-human animal interests in order to make some progress here because it's not good for humans for us to be feeding a third of global cereal output to farmed animals just because of a preference for marketing animal products rather than marketing plant-based products, for example. A lot of the trade-offs people suggest in terms of this is the only way we're going to feed a growing human population turn out to be completely false in terms of what kinds of changes in our food systems are going to lead to better global food and water security, better human nutrition, and, and so on. So it seems to me really important to be attending to issues about human well-being and environmental well-being alongside animal well-being in order to diffuse some sensible worries about if people are worried, are we choosing between the interests of poor and vulnerable human beings or advancing the interests of non-human animals? That's a sensible, that's a sensible worry. I don't think it is the case in relation to most of the changes in relation to our dealings with animals that that I'm most concerned about. So when you're teaching a 101 class on this subject, what would be the main takeaway that you really would want your students to come away with? So when I got to the end of the, my two-volume work on animals, which started off with Christian theology and then went to Christian ethics, the sort of final paragraph, I began to think, 
maybe the fundamental problem here is spiritual. And so maybe the first thing is to enable people to be opened up to the idea that we are creatures living among fellow creatures. And that as a sort of starting point for understanding how we see our place in the world seems to me to be perhaps the most fundamental insight that would then generate a, a kind of thinking and practice that would mean we would do better by other animals. So instead of seeing um, ourselves or the human community en masse as some unique entity disconnected from the sort of wider environment to recognize that we are one kind of creature, one kind of living thing, living alongside myriad of other creatures in, in whom we should uh, delight, in whom the God that Christians worship delights, and therefore looking for opportunities to promote the flourishing of all of these diverse creaturely kinds. That seems to me to be the heart of what I'd like to people to understand from a kind of Christian engagement with animal theology and ethics that, that I'm pointing to. And, you know, after that, we can quibble about all kinds of details about what it would mean to take that vision seriously. But I think if you start with that vision, recognizing a sort of moral imperative to be taking seriously the interests of human and non-human creatures, then it seems to me that the vast majority of our kind of practice in relation to the use we make of other animals for food and textiles and research experimentation, all of that is suddenly radically in question just from that starting point of saying, okay, we recognize fellow creatures ex as existent alongside us. So if there was a book that you could gift to all of the listeners, what would that be? So the book in the last sort of decade that I found most has shifted the way I think about these things is not a book of theology at all. It's the book by Silan Afko called Afro, which is engaging thinking about humans and other animals alongside thinking about racism, the kind of religious and a-religious accounts of human supremacy that have been the background of our conversation are also the structures that have supported racist understandings of intra-human relationships. And I think that's another way of coming at this question of why animal ethics can't be single issue because we need to be recognizing the ways in which the structures that have justified and legitimated human oppression of non-human animals have also been structures that have justified and legitimated the oppression of black people by white people and the kind of the resonances and deeply uncomfortable parallelisms in those spheres are just really acutely identified and diagnosed in that book by Simonaco. I feel like that's one that maybe someone has recommended before, and I really need to get that one, I think, because as soon as people start recommending things more than uh -huh. once, I start hearing it, then I'm like, okay, yeah, that's one I definitely need to get. So I'm going to have to read that one next. I think I'll have to go higher up on my book list. Thank you for that. So would you share your, maybe your earliest childhood memory of your connection with animals? So I can't swear that it's my earliest, but one of things that characterized my childhood is that 
my two younger brothers had asthma, so we weren't ever allowed to have cats or dogs in that house. And after a while, probably in my early teens, I think my grandparents brought, without any consultation with my parents, they were so concerned that these children had been awfully deprived of companion animals, they brought a rabbit to the <laughs> And so suddenly we had to make space for the rabbit, which was going to be not a domestic house rabbit, but living at the end of the garden. And our rabbit, Benji, would would occasionally burrow out of his enclosure. We were quite keen not to keep him in his hutch all the time, but he'd tunnel under fences, unsurprisingly. And so that was my first kind of sustained personal relationship with a non-human animal. And then when I began to learn, I remember a presentation, a classroom presentation when I was probably about 15 of a classmate about animal experimentation and these sort of awful LD50 toxicity tests where you just increase the amount of a chemical until half of the rabbits in your experimental pool die. And that tells you how toxic chemical is. I think the kind of combination of living with Benji and that kind of just egregious, what's just seemed horrific cruelty, I think began to form a sort of sense that this needed deep moral attention. I was a big rabbit person myself in my teens. And yeah, going to university and being told, okay, if you're going to be on the veterinary track, then you're going to need to sign up for these classes that involve taking a rabbit and breaking its leg and then fixing it and then euthanizing the rabbit. Oh, you're just like, well, why the would I want to do that? If I'm trying to be a veterinary student, which I was not, this was just a class I was thinking about taking as a part of a zoology degree. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not going to take that class. Like, that's just not what I'm going to take. And if I don't get my degree, then I will get a different degree because that's not a class that I'm going to be comfortable with. And why would anybody else be like, why does anybody put up with that? That's what would even be the point? Why do we even do it? It just doesn't make sense for any, if anybody were to do that in their own home, it would be looked on very differently. But for some reason, if somebody, you know, an authority tells you that it's okay, then suddenly it's okay. How is that right? Yeah, it's almost the class, which was a necessary condition for being a vet should have been seen as taking that class should have been seen as a kind of preventing condition. Yeah. Right. So what's the deal with animals? So here we are, we're animal creatures funded by fellow animal creatures. And part of our task as we make our way in this world is to be attentive to what it means to live better alongside the human and non-human below animal creatures that, that we live with. That's the kind of, that's the kind of task of being an animal and the kind of human specificity of being the kind of particular animal we are. That really speaks to animals just being for just that purpose, for just being ourselves. There's no, there is no ultimate use or necessity of an animal being around for any particular reason other than just the joy of being itself. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated the talk. Very enlightening. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, America. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. David Clough, Professor in Theology and Applied Sciences at the University of Aberdeen. 
He is author of the landmark two-volume monograph, On Animals, which discusses the place of animals in Christian theology and ethics. To find out more about David, you can look up Default Veg Campaign, Creature Kind, or you can find him at DLClough on Twitter. What do you think is the deal with animals? If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com and leave me a message. This is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. I'm your host, Marika Bell. I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsar for help with editing. You can see links to guest book recommendations as well as their websites and affiliated organizations in the show notes and at thedealwithanimals.com. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, what's the deal with animals? The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.